Hello, <laughs> and welcome to Prop Talk, the official podcast of the Property Masters Guild. Um, I'm your host, Michael Trudell, and co-hosting with me today is Carissa Douglas. Hey, thanks, Mike. Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm Carissa. I'm from Ben Labs, and we're proud sponsors of the PMG. We're a product placement agency, and we've been working with Prop Masters for over 45 years now. Well, I know, pretty impossible to say. <laughs> And here I am today, it's like being at home. It's like coming home for me today. I was driving here thinking how excited I was to be with two of some of the most important people in my life who have mentored me uh, since I was 22, I think I figured is when I met you. So I'm here today with Dave McGuire and Josh Meltzer, two of some of the first people I ever met in the industry. And in fact, Josh, you were the first prop master I ever met. Really? And, yes, and ever mm. worked with. And uh, he was so gracious to allow me to hang out in your office on stage of Suddenly Susan. And I was able to ask questions, hang out, wait for Judd Nelson to come in because, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. So I grew up with, uh, you know, all those movies. But it was, a, it was a safe space to work with you guys when I was starting out. And product placement was also pretty new in especially in television and I use examples like you when I'm training new people in our industry when I have younger folks straight out of school as I was starting in product placement learning the business there's so many nuances in your craft that are always changing and you know even today changed probably from Thursday always you know changes and I I take for my experience with you the advice I give to them is you know build a few foundations Build your cornerstone relationships that you feel you can ask questions and be in a safe place and learn as you go. And those who have patience to share your experiences and give us advice. And both of you really exemplify, exemplify patience and wisdom. So with that, <laughs> um, thanks for joining us today. You know, Dave, you're, you're uh, retired now. Yeah, 11 years I've been retired. Yeah. Well, yeah, 11 years. That's right. Well, <laughs> Josh, you're trying to retire. I'm, I'm trying to retire. <laughs> I've been in and out of retirement once, and uh, it will probably happen at least one more time. Okay, so, so, so once being just a year ago. Yep, once a year ago, and then I came out to do a, a Michael Keaton movie, which will come out this fall, called Knox Goes Away. And now I'm um, semi-retired, uh, waiting for um, the new uh, Dexter uh, stories to start. Yes, that's. Uh, I know that Mike, you're you're pretty excited about that. Oh, I'm excited about anything Dexter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I was a big Dexter fan, and that's. I mean, and we talked about a little bit. Uh, I don't know. If, on one of the episodes, uh, Polo was one of my main mentors coming in because she did. I think season one and two is actually. She did right? season one and two. Yeah. Yeah. So I I kind of like sought her out to be able to like teach me i mean her being an incredible person i guess is what carried it on past that <laughs> but but yeah that was probably my most excited thing to be able to work with her and you finishing it off you've done some of the best seasons there are of dexter <laughs> yeah, yeah the uh the the, the run and dave did most of those with me um the, the seasons that we did there were some some pretty iconic tv moments in those years oh yeah for undoubtedly sure. Undoubtedly. But even when it came back, though, for because they just did, after 10 years, they did like an extra season. So to hear that they're doing more Dexter stuff is kind of pretty awesome that they're starting like a whole universe. 
there's going to be a new a new Dexter universe, and um, you know, I think it just speaks to um, you know how good the writing was on the right. show and the characters. How you know, ten years later, you can come back and you can finish that story, and then you can still go back and revisit the same characters in another time, you know, right. when, they, when they were younger, you know, because what's going to be coming out, because there's no, it's no secret, it's been in the, the trades, it's all going to be origin stories and what made Dexter Dexter and what made Trinity Trinity and all of that stuff. So, I mean, to go back and, and just, I mean, it, the, the story's rich. It's a very rich story. Right. I think so too. <laughs> remember when it came in, the description, when you're trying to describe a lead character who's a serial killer, but a likable serial killer. And for us working on the brand side, that was especially difficult to try to explain. But you're going to like him. He's doing good work. How do you get a positive exposure out of that? Yeah. yeah and what I'm going with product placement in Dexter, I mean, one of the things that was so, so really fascinating for me was you know, season one and two, I mean, when, when Paula was doing the show, um, I mean, uh, I, 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 I took over the last four or five episodes of season one and trying to get product placement was like pulling teeth right. because nobody wanted to be involved with blood and serial killer and everything else. And then Paula went on to another show and they asked me to come in and take the show over season three. And, People are lining up yeah. to be on the show. Because they've seen it now. <laughs> you know, he, yeah. he is a likable serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and more than being a likable serial killer, it had viewership. It had numbers. And that's the name of the game is, you know, can we put the product on there and how many people are going to see it? Yeah. <laughs> but like for us on our side because we've worked together with you so long yeah. and with all of our partners so long when it is a first run or we even get a pilot it is explaining or when mikey did american horror stories it's saying you know i trust the people on mm -hmm. set and it's a lot of it's that trust and when our clients trust us that we're saying we trust you and we are you know you're going to keep us out of you know situations that are a little too edgy um yeah i mean that's what's really helped us as an agency to have placements in first run Dexter in first run um, American horror story and stories and Sopranos, mm -hmm. you know, it's it, bloody is blood. Wasn't that scary if we know who's, who's behind it. So we had some good stuff. Yeah. 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 I think overall like a good episodic to, that will get such a fan base like that, that exposure, you can't really <laughs> like, it, it lives it, on. Yeah. Right? It so, lives on. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, uh, I mean, Fans stuff like they, people are still going back and re binging those whole seasons. Like it, it's one of those types of shows that goes down. Same with like a show like The Sopranos. You know what I mean? I put it right in the same category. For mm -hmm. sure, for sure. And, and Seinfeld. We just started watching Cheers. Oh, really? Too old because <laughs> no. we were we started watching Cheers all over again and Seinfeld all over because content's a little lean right now. I mean, we're in the middle of strikes, strike, and maybe more. Mm -hmm. And um. There's not a lot of new content being released. There's a lot being held on to and spacing it out as we go. And it's fun. You're right. Like, it's fun to go back and rewatch something you watched 20 years ago or 15 years ago. And it's still, like you said, relatable to yeah. those characters. Well, I mean, I mean, there's, you know, there are, are, are networks now that are all about, uh, like, MeTV and stuff that are all about playing all mm -hmm. the old shows. And, 
I mean, I'm I'm binge watching the old Dick Van Dyke show, oh, and nice. it's amazing how much of that still plays. It's just it's good. It's just good writing and good material, and it's timeless. You know, good writing is good writing. Right. Um, I in my in the last episode I talked about watching me TV because I'm addicted to Wild Wild West, so I record them all. So I'm not going to bring up Wild Wild West again. But we did start. Uh, Except I, that you just I did. just did. <laughs> Robert Conrad, may you rest. Him. Anyway, uh, but we started watching uh, for some reason Hawaii Five O, and the original Hawaii Five O. I was like, this actually is the most inclusive show probably on right now. Actually, I mean there were so many people on that show. And you're right, the writing actually wasn't, some of it's a little cheesy, but some's actually pretty still relevant today, you know, which is interesting. And sometimes your actors will, will pull, a, pull a good performance out of a bad script, too. So. Well, that's their job, right? <laughs> do, the props, do the props help them? A little. They should. <laughs> they can. They can. Um, a good, I mean, a good, a good prop, I mean, we've, we've both worked with actors who either don't care about a prop sometimes, they get in the way, or actors who really lean on props and have to always have something in their hand, even if it's uh, you know, not scripted or not even really necessary, but they always have to have some business. Yeah, yeah. You know? I was talking about that with Mike earlier. But you know, it's one of our jobs to work, to work a set well, you have, to, you have to read between the lines of what's on the script, and you, and you, you, you see that the actor is going to need some, some motivation to do some action over on the other part of the set, you know, and it's like, put some vegetables out there with a knife, you know, and let them, give them a chance to have something to do ahead of time. And know? drive the sound man crazy at the same time. Well, that was, <laughs> it's automatic. <laughs> is that why we have to dole them all the time i'm worried because we just got a new a knife client and so <laughs> i'm hearing about rubber knives and they're okay with murder guys and uh the doling of the knife and i'm like if an actor's chopping dull can't that hurt the can't they hurt themselves a dull knife will hurt an actor quicker than a sharp yeah. knife yeah, yeah. it's, 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 about, it's used, about yeah. working with the actor before they do the scene just like a gun or any other weapon, anything's going to hurt an actor. You work with them first and make sure they're comfortable with it. That's all. It's, yeah. you know, I mean, all the safety protocols that are in all the safety bulletins and everything else are all there. If ADs will follow them, nobody should get hurt on set. So, yeah, you all are so um, versed in knife yeah I, I think that's i will i think that's what probably led me into american horror stories is because of my fascinations with shows like that i mean even like lost is also like a big one like i like sci-fi fantasy and i like like the kind of blood gore type of thing because props wise they're it's not just handing off watches and, mm -hmm. and purses and, and stuff like that it's it's so much more than that and you have to figure out you have to figure out how to do things to make the action more achievable. And as we're going forward with knives, like with you, you had to do, you you just showed me like one of Dexter's main killing knives that you told me about, like it being aluminum and like something came up where you have to slice the saran wrap off the side, and that kind of changed the game of the whole knife where you had to make something else that would work for the scene. Right. Yeah. So, like, how many versions of that knife do you think you've had to? You had, or you had to make throughout the run of the show, you know? Well, there was the, uh, the, the hero knife, which was aluminum, and then we had the retractable version, which was a fully retractable version. And then um, we had rubber ones for rehearsals right. and for stunt fights. And then 
Um, what I was talking to you about before is I have a steel version that we made because there was a, a special sequence where we had to take and uh, Dexter had to take the knife and slice uh, a uh, saran wrap and cut somebody free. And of course, you can't put a sharp enough edge on the aluminum knife. So we had to use a steel one to get a real blade on it. And then um, I think that's all the versions of the hero knife we had. Yeah. And so, and, and I was telling Dave uh, before most of you guys got here, like how things are changing a lot with us, um, with like American Horror Stories, because we'd had a lot of stabbing. We had a lot of knives, a lot of custom knives and stuff like that. And a new thing is that almost most of the shows I've been on, aside from Horror Stories, it, the new thing is the the optical blade, which is just the cut blade at the front, just and visual effects puts it in post. And almost every show I've gone on now, they always want that version. They want someone who can just go stabbing with just the thing, and then they'll take a picture of the real one, and then they just pop it in in post. And apparently, it's gotten to the point where it's inexpensive now. So there's like there's probably about twenty kits over at ISS that I've taken because they always came with two rubbers a doll and a reel well most of those second rubbers are being cut in half now because mm-hmm. every time i get a kid is like can i cut the blade in half and they're like yeah we're gonna cut the blade in half yeah because we don't need two rubbers as much anymore as we need as a one with just a hilt so mm-hmm. so that's become like the new big thing that we're doing with the, a lot of these knife kits <laughs> yeah so, soon after we made the dexter knives um i guess technology caught up yeah and because uh, while I was still doing uh, Dexter, I went to Atlanta on, on the off season and um, finished up the back nine episodes of uh, Vampire Diaries for oh, Joe, cool. for Joe Connolly because if it wasn't blood, I, I didn't do the show. <laughs> and, um, and they were doing the, the 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 cut the knife with the green hilt and everything. Else. They right. Were, they were doing all of their stabbings uh, in post. Yeah. So I, that's when I got caught up to that technology and everything else yeah yeah i just came straight into it pretty much but we're starting to not use retractables almost at all anymore um i mean unless i guess there's like a lot i mean a lot of the scenes in dexter i feel like we use retractables aren't like crazy like or sporadic like jolting in it's mostly chest on table right like precision yeah precision there you go <laughs> and michael michael c hall dexter you know was I think arguably the best actor I've ever worked with, with a prop. He was precise all the time, every time, with the needle in the neck, with the the um, uh, the, the the scalpel on the cheek, right? With the knife in the chest. I mean, he was he was an artist with it. He he really really was just a, a ultimate pro. Yeah, was it was it was the, the the blade on the cheek a blood scalpel? It was a, it was a blood scalpel that we 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 custom made and it was all actor action yeah oh very cool That's so for any lame any layman out there what does that mean blood it's scalpel. like yeah you could explain I mean, it was, a, it was we had a left hand and a right hand version so you would take the scalpel and we would hollow out the handle on the back on the off camera side and we would just put a little plastic pipette uh, in there that we could fill with blood so then as the scalpel is being dragged across the cheek. What the camera sees is just a scalpel on a cheek, and in the back, Michael's pushing on the pipette and forcing the blood out, and, be, and this, the blade will make it run in a straight line like it's being cut. Mm-hmm. It's a great... It um, looks real as hell. It, it, like, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a great practical effect. 
Yeah. But now you're saying it's not so practical. Now it's well. That is like, still, that still is. Still I would is. I would still oh, do that over I, anything. I I I, I, w- I would fight with a producer because I can save you money doing that gag practically, as opposed to you trying to do that in post and spending the money. Why? This is not dangerous at all. The scalpel's completely safe. Yeah. I mean, we would always take the scalpels and we would slice them on our arms before when we were showing them to actors and everything else. I mean, scalpel is completely safe. Most of the time, they weren't sharp. Most of the time, yeah. <laughs> there was that. Yeah. You know what? There was the time. <laughs> what you're talking about with with the CGI effect to the industry, right? Is when I when I left the industry 12 years ago, it was still cost prohibitive. Right, right. We were, we were doing all of our real effects back then. For yeah, the, for the most part. And <clears throat> I think that I don't know. One of the things that I always tried to tell people that were working with me that were new was not to get too invested in doing things one way all the time. Yeah. Because it's an art form and it's going to constantly change. Oh, yeah. CGI is a perfect example of changing dramatically. I think dramatically. so, for yeah. sure. And a lot of, like, as retractables can look good, but sometimes they could just, like, I mean, you have to change it out there a lot beefier most of the times, depending on what knife you're using. And at some point, retractable stick at some point so they they're not always the most safest to use and depending on the scene they could be quite dangerous so and there's also the uh, the actor who's getting stabbed right i mean i mean how i mean you know uh despite the fact that you know we, we never had a retractable stick even using an aluminum retractable we were always putting padding Mm-hmm. On under the saran wrap that of all the Dexter's victims, because to really stab somebody through the chest, through the sternum, you've got to come in with a lot of force. So to make it look real, I mean, Michael would come down on that stab really hard multiple times. Right. You know, I mean, I mean, it's it's a pounding. Did you ever ever have any actors, actresses, victims? It was just too much for them. They couldn't handle it. They were wigging out, nervous. We had, I mean, when we would wrap people up in the kill room. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I mean. Were they really wrapped? Oh, they were really wrapped. Because I yeah. would have anxiety. There, there's, like, when we, I mean, season one, when I was, uh, I was working as Polo's assistant on season one, um, we were still in the R&D stages of trying to figure out how to do this and get people in and off the table quickly right because otherwise they would sit there for hours under saran wrap naked and sweating and um, it was just awful so we we constantly were kind of figuring it out and by the time i took the show over season three we came up with a decent system of getting people on and off the table pretty quick but it was still a process because they had to be secured enough so they could act and try to struggle right and the tape wouldn't come off and everything else because we didn't we didn't wrap them fully to the table right i mean it just went under the table and then we just secured it but what did you secure it with uh more packing tape more packing tape <laughs> sometimes we put a few extra loops all the way around oh gotcha Not, but and but, but that's, enough that's easy to take off we would make sheets so they they were as wide as the body and as long as the body. Yeah. And we would layer, God, I don't know, 10, 10 layers of it 
in a big sheet. Then uh-huh. we'd lay that down over them. Then we would put the wrap around to make it look like it was all looped around. Right, right. Because okay. I was feeling like it'd be like in an MRI tube. That would be horrible. Well, it, it was for people. <laughs> We had what we I was going to say. Those... Someone had to get super nervous. There were, there were actors the first time they would walk into a kill room, especially if they were like just like in that episode, and all of a sudden they get they get offed. They'd walk into a kill room, and they'd look around with all the plastic on the walls and everything else, and you could see them like try to take this in, like oh my god, yeah, this is really freaky, you know. Meth- and, method. And method. Dave, Dave was the one who was. Uh, responsible for wrapping most of the people <laughs> and keep them keeping them comfortable keeping and not, comfortable. not too frightened yeah. we had one fella because we had he it was the first scene of the day and it was going all day I think it was the as scene. they often did and and he we wrapped him up and it was one of those days where the ad's pushed us past meal and he stayed on the table from the call time until like an hour past meal why? So he was like seven hours on the table. Oh my god! Why? He just what? Because we were shooting. It takes a while to reset it. They, uh-huh. they must be that. sweating like crazy. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. They lose a few pounds. Yeah. 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 Dave was was. I mean, Dave is one of the one of the best prop masters I've ever known, and was one of my dearest friends, and also one of the best assistants I could ever have because his ability to to rig and manufacture and just think on his feet and problem solve was fantastic. And especially when it came to keeping the actors comfortable in these situations and the, the little inventions that he came up with, with little neck pillows and little things under somebody's head and mm. under their knees. And because they're laying on, we used a lot of different things for tables, but they were always a hard surface. I mean, there was nothing comfortable that anybody right. was ever strapped to. Never. I mean, we had we strapped them to scoreboards and tabletops. Yeah. And all kinds of things. Yeah, that makes sense. How did you guys meet? Did you? you... I was going to say we have we haven't gone that direction too much yet. We've been talking. Yeah. About... yeah. We got into yeah. Dexter right away. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good. That's the chunk we don't need to talk about later on. Just dove dove <laughs> right in. But that, but that before we we leave that point about you, we've always been so calm and and calming. So that's what. That makes sense because when I think about every time I, w- I was driving over here and I was excited to see you since I hadn't seen you in a dozen years. And if I, it's so what's the Maya Angelou uh, quote about, you know, they may not remember what you said, but how they, how you made them feel. And you always brought this positivity and calmness, which now that I know 20 something years later more about props, it comes into play. You yeah. know, when you're you're deal. calm, you can be a better problem solver, and you, you know, keep everything. The, the tensions are already high on a set, I'd imagine, um, whether you're tied up or not, it's uh, saran wrapped <laughs> or not, right? So yeah. I, comes you've with always, the camera. <laughs> you've, have you always just your whole life had that demeanor, or you learn it along the way? Because I'd it's, like to practice. I, I love that you've brought that up because somebody towards the end of oh, I forget what I was doing. It was oh, it was, no. I won't mention names. <laughs> One of the shows I was doing, where there was this very tense situation, and the actress was also a producer, and 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 she was giving me like the fifteenth instruction to do the same thing over and over again, and and she looked at me and she says, "You have the patience of a saint." <laughs> <laughs> and my assistant came and said the same thing, and I said, "Inside, 
is not what you're seeing outside. It's like a du- it's like a duck, <laughs> you know, underwater. Yeah, I I yeah I, I told Josh when he was back east doing another show. He says one of the reasons that I retired at sixty is because I internalized so much of all that tension all the time, and I could feel myself aging from it. Oh no! So I I graciously the you know the with the union set up and everything as it was I was able to retire at sixty, which was without. Now I travel the world. So oh, nice! I hang out in the mountains and I and I play with dogs and I, I've been to since I retired. I've been to Brazil and Spain and Italy. And oh, nice! So yeah, the rest I'm, of us I'm, are over here working still, Dave. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm not rich. I mean, I wish I we just were enjoy what I do. But I mean, it's a good segue to going back to like the origin of how you got in entertainment or why did you. What was it about props that really suck you in? And because I do think some of these skills, like the calmness or staying level-headed, you know, dealing with all sorts of personalities, um, you have to develop them along the way. I don't think a lot, unless you're truly blessed out of the gate, have that. Have that you know, so I don't know who wants to go first. How, how'd you get in, Dave? Well, I I got in. You know, it was the old school <clears throat> where you know. The, all of the union people had to be working before a permitted a person could get on as a permit. I got in in those days. In props or some part of the other? Something Set else. dressing. Set dressing, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> back then, I don't know how different it is these days, but it, back then, um, set dressing was kind of the entry level of props. You got yeah. in, you, you worked on the swing gang of a set dressing crew, and then for me, I've... I occasionally got closer and closer to the people working with the camera, and I really liked that work. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoy, um, you know, in single camera work, you're you're always anticipating what's going to be next. You're anticipating what the DP's where the DP is going to put the camera for the next shot, and where you're going to put the stuff that you move out of the way, and 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 keeping the actors comfortable and tense right. situations and you're juggling all those things at one time all the time and i just loved that that feeling of helping to create the image that we would see on the yeah that would come across before the monitors actually before monitors before yeah. monitors there was a time when we shot without monitors yeah <laughs> the only person the only person who knew what was going on was the the operator, the operator. and we'd finish a take and all of a sudden you'd hear the director say did you get it I mean, all the, the filmmakers today don't even know what it is or check the gate or any of that yeah. stuff. Yeah, there's a hair in the lens. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a hair in the gate. Yeah, there's a hair. Yeah, I mean, it, there were no monitors. There was no video. There was a, it hadn't the, the technology was wasn't there yet. So you there would just be the guy with his as we used to say his eye in the hole and uh, and and doing the wheels and running the camera and he was the only person who knew. If the shot worked or not. Okay, Dave, so when when was this? Like when did it end? When did we get monitors? When did we get monitors? Middle eighties. Mm, Mid eighties, yeah. When we started. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, one of the famous when when monitors started being on all the sets, it was a slow transition that way. I remember um, different people saying, you know, they did Lawrence of Arabia without monitors. Yeah. So, you know, and and literally. The director would say to the operator, "Was that good for you?" 
Yeah. And if the operator said it was good, except for a little hitch at this point or whatever. Yeah. And then the director would say whether or not he was going to print that take. Yeah. And that was that was the sequence. It was right. very different back then. Yeah. And very often the 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 operator would say, "I think I got it, but I'd like one more for protection." Mm-hmm. You know, um, it was just a different way of of of. Um, of doing what we do now. Well, I mean, it just talks about innovation, right? It's just yeah. examples, again, of, like, the technology's changing. Keeps now we're changing. adjusting to it. You know, I uh, was there, I doubt there was pushback. Or people, when monitors came out, was there, I'm sure there was some sort of assimilation period. Yeah, you there know. was, there were, some directors resisted it. I saw it a couple of times. What would they do? They just. Throw some director's chairs and not be in Video Village. They just didn't watch it. Okay. It's closely. They ask. They they would still ask the operator. Yeah, yeah. You know. The operator knew better than than a monitor. And of course, whenever anybody in in new technology comes up, there's always going to be people who are going to embrace it. People who are not. You know. I mean, who got the monitors? I mean, now you go on a set and everybody has them. You you watch it on your phone, right. On mm-hmm. on QTake. You know. And I mean, Dave and I go back to you know, a time when uh, really going to date ourselves. When not everybody on a crew had a walkie-talkie, right? I only mean, the ads. Only the ads had walkie-talkies. Yeah, and you would just run all day long back and forth to the truck to get stuff. <laughs> my yeah, ma- my mouth's open right now. I know. Josh just caught me. <laughs> yeah, I, only the ads had a walkie-talkie. Yeah, and there were no cell phones. Right, and there were. I mean, there was no computer or Amazon. I mean, we Dave and I would Dave and I would drive all over the city all day long. Right. To source props, you know, there wasn't ISS. ISS started the year that we we started our careers, but it still was in its infancy. Yeah. So there was Ellis Mercantile, and there was the hand prop room, and that was it. Yeah. Pretty much. So there was no one stop shop like ISS. You know, if we needed to go, I mean, back when we were starting our careers the the old school prop masters the um uh the denny parishes and billy smallbacks and uh art hansons and people like that they would have notebooks with hundreds and hundreds of business cards Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. because i know a guy yeah that's what made one prop master different than another prop master was their source book. And it was, it was, it was very competitive that way, which is um, one reason why when technology came in years later, um, you know, I, I, I started a, a Facebook group. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it was to utilize technology and bring prop masters together yeah. and try to get rid of the competitive, competitiveness of prop masters because at that point we had social media and we had Google. So anything that Dave knew, I could know in a split second. Right. But if I already know it, let's put it on a website and share it with other prop masters. Yeah. We all rise together. It's funny. When I first started, one of the first, uh, you know, like, things my boss gave me, I started my own book too. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you called it book of source, a source book. book. 
It was just my business card book. Mm-hmm. But it was just, that's how you kept track of everyone. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, we were watching something and Dave asked me, my husband, about, uh, did I have a day runner? Because it was a period show. And um, actually, we had nothing to watch last night. So we watched Clear and Present Danger, which I think Hope <laughs> Parrish did, right? I couldn't remember. But anyway, it was a day runner. And we were talking about this. So you had your lift and by your day runner and your, your, your business cards and this and that. So I did find mine a while back and had to throw it away. <laughs> I think it was all. But the other thing, too, I think it's impactful. If the, we had listeners who are tuning in not from Los Angeles, when you say you were driving all over L.A., you decided North Hollywood for ISS and what, Culver City or, or you know, West L.A. for uh, HPR for Ham Prop Room. Hollywood. For Ellis. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about, I mean, it's very spread out. Oh, yeah. And you're, yeah. you have people waiting for you? You had a salesperson at each of those houses that was on the ready. your regular contact. Right. But, but you know, the, like you said, the business card file. That yeah. was, I used to have three different notebooks. Yeah. <laughs> they were all business cards. I mean, we used to go out and drop off on sets way more. And that was the fun of my job is mm-hmm. because probably for the same reason, you guys didn't have time. And we're going back decades. But... I lived in my little Honda Del Sol driving all over L.A. <laughs> with whatever I can bring over to you, you know, and um, probably because the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's spread out and that's traffic. And again, are do, are, are there people waiting back at stage or for you sometimes. guys to get yeah. sometimes? I mean, it, it it's all situational and goes to the show and how the show's being run. And, you know, is is the prep time um being used properly in terms of are they changing things on you constantly? Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, Dave and I are two, I think, two of the, the more organized prop masters. So as long as there are not last second changes, we were pretty much ready, you know, two or three days in advance of anything that was coming. Right. So if they moved up a scene a day, it usually wasn't a huge deal unless it involved, you know, food or something like that. But I I'm I'm blessed in 47 years of keeping actors hands full. You know, I I don't ever remember having one of those shows that was really one of those nightmares where it was just constant chaos and you're constantly changing the schedule and you're constantly doing this. I mean, there's days like that on every show, but I I never had one of the nightmare shows. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Did you start in set dressing too? Uh, I started, yeah, I mean, yeah, we started, uh, I think we started the same year, 77? 77, yeah. yeah. Um, I started the Universal Prop House in 1977. Oh. Actually, I started in the labor department. I was a child actor. Really? Yeah, I was a, chi- I was a child actor. My father was a screen. So you grew up here pretty much? No, my, I... my father was a screenwriter he, oh, during, okay. during the golden age of Hollywood. Very cool. And um, I think my dad was scared that I'd be living on his couch when I was 40. <laughs> so when I was 18, he got me a job uh, behind the camera. Uh, and I found myself digging ditches and running a jackhammer and sweeping stages and all of that stuff at Universal. And I kept quitting because it wasn't creative. Right. It was just manual labor. I didn't mind manual labor, but I had to be creative. Yeah. And I got transferred to the, the prop department one day, and there were no on-set dressers back then. That position hadn't been created yet. Right, right. So like Dave said, you would go in, you'd do your set dressing, and then if there was a changeover on set, um, they would leave a set dresser with the shooting company to, to do the changeover. And it was on an old TV show um, called uh, Rossetti and Ryan uh, with Tony Roberts and Squire Friedel. Um, 
and uh, Joe Montanero was the prop master. And um, I got left on set, and uh, I remember going to Joe, and I was 18 years old, and I said, hey, I'm here for the changeover. Let me know if you need help. And he looked at me aghast. <laughs> like, <clears throat> the set dressers never would go to the prop master and say, let me know if you need help. It was like they would find some furniture pad somewhere and go to sleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? um, and I went to him and said, let me know if you need help. He went, you want to help, kid? <laughs> and I said, yeah. He goes, come here. And he, he took out three cartons of cigarettes. And he took a cigarette and he cut it to a specific length. And he said, um, he took three cigarettes and uh, cut them to different lengths. And he said, cut one carton to this size, one carton to this size, and one carton to this size. Oh. And I was fascinated and asked questions and wanted to learn. Right. And then he told me how to make, you know, colored drinks for a, for, for, for a bar scene. And, and I ate it up. I just ate it up. I went, all right, this I can do. I'm, I'm on the set. I'm working with directors. I'm working with actors. It's, it's now. We need to figure something out. And I just, and, you know. And did he start hiring you then? Uh, Joe was near the end of his career. Okay. But um, I just, I guess I started getting a, a reputation uh, very early as somebody who was young and um, wanted to learn. Yeah, it was teachable you're hungry. <laughs> because there were a lot of people back in those days who didn't really want to work all that hard. Uh, it was the, the late 70s, early 80s, and there were a lot of um, other influences in the industry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, what what really uh, kind of sealed my my career was I was in doing all my acting before I got into the industry. Most of it was sage work uh, and theater acting. And I got my master's card in 83, and Norman Lear had moved all of his productions from a local 33 lot in Hollywood to Universal Studios. And doing all the multi-camera shows for Norman Lear one day at a time and Silver Spoons and all those things, they would rehearse for three days in a rehearsal hall and you'd have to tape out the floor and have rehearsal props. And it was a completely different process than what all the local 44 prop masters knew. It was all theater-based. And I knew that technology. I I knew that system. And I was working as an assistant on... Uh, a show and um, a producer called me and I don't know to this day I I wish she was alive I would love to find out how she got my number and she called me and said hey I understand you understand rehearsal props and I said well yeah and she goes I would love to meet you and I was hired to be a prop master on a show called Double Trouble for Norman Lear and as they say, the rest was history. I was gold because I understood that process of rehearsal props because they were dealing with all these prop masters who are our age now who were who came from you know the, the 60s and didn't know what a rehearsal prop was. So they would see a script and the rehearsal was the next day and they would run all over trying to find the perfect prop instead of just something to put in the actor's hands. Yeah, yeah. So is that standard now, though, to have rehearsal prop and then... If in that, in that format, in a sitcom format, in a multi-camera show, yeah. Yeah, you have rehearsal props, 
and then you have the hero prop. Well, but the whole rehearsal hall concept of that, uh, my, who's the boss was my first exposure. Mm -hmm. to I remember. That. And getting the blueprints and transferring those into tape lines on a floor for all the different rooms of a set. Because it was just, you were working in one room. So, you know, the kitchen set would be your blue tape lines and your, your living room would be your red tape lines. And you had to put the doors in the right place. Then you had all your furniture on rolling. You had them on oh, wheels. With, yeah. And you'd th throw a piece of grip chain around the wheel to keep it from rolling away, except with Tony Hughes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking of you guys because I, I was watching uh, And Just Like That on Sunday or last over the weekend, mm -hmm. the Sex and City reboot. Mm -hmm. And Tony Danza has a has a part in it uh -huh. and it told and he plays Tony Danza himself and all I kept thinking over the stories you guys have told about you know we, him. Won't, we won't tell those here we, no no yeah. I'm talking about the breaking of the props he was so hands oh, yes. on with you Remember know the Tony the Johnny, the Johnny Carson ips <laughs> just breaks props well Josh had made up stickers that was that said Tony proof <laughs> and I stuck them on all kinds of props. I stuck them on the furniture. I stuck them on the cameras, on the booms. I stuck them on everything. And Tony came in. This was for the taping of the very last episode of the season. And Tony came into the set and saw this, and he just died. He was hysterical. So he went on Carson the next night and told the story about this prop guy who... <laughs> well, it's just like the the... the... It's such an intimate thing, your experience. I'm an outsider, so whenever I'm on a stage and I'm watching rehearsals or I'm watching something tape before a live studio audience, it's a very like familial. It's a it's a tight group. You guys get really tight, and I do. I always love the prank stories. I love because what else do you do in your downtime? You know, so um, so um, what came? I don't remember. Was it the Lorimar years or the first? You and me. Yeah. You and me came, I think the first thing was you were lead man on a show called Two Guys from Muck. Oh, God, yes. And, <laughs> and one, I, of your, one of your favorites, huh? I oh could tell. Oh, my God. And I, and I, I was on your crew for a while. Mm -hmm. And then you uh, were the, the foreman at Lorimar. And um, yeah. and you started using me all the time. I have to, I have to compliment Josh at this point. We're talking about loving to do the work, right? I was the prop foreman. For, for Lorimar Studios, and they had, God, I don't know, six TV, network TV shows going at the same time over at MGM. And the way Lorimar would do their prop men is they would they would have a master and a second, and then for the, the master was allowed three prep days between from one episode to the next. Right. And on those three days, he was allowed an extra body on his crew to make up for him not being on the set. Yeah. Well, as the prop foreman... I had to find people who were willing to drop into that spot and do the job, you know, to literally jump into a show and be the extra prop guy on the set with the actors. And I, mostly what I had was set dressers who did not want to get anywhere close to the Yeah, camera. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Josh, Josh was that person for me. I could take him from one show to another show to another show to another show, and he was... he. Everybody loved him everywhere he went. So yeah. I, kudos to you on that. I, I know you learned a lot of hard lessons doing that with those oh, people. Oh, there were a lot of experiences. What were the Lorimar shows? Were those like Dallas? The, the, oh, Dallas, the soaps. Dallas, yeah. King's Crossing, Falcon Crest, Eight's Flamingo enough. Road. Flamingo Road. Flamingo yeah. Road, Eight is Enough, yeah. Oh, my God. There were so many. 
I just think of those, yeah, those uh, soap operas. Yep. So the the Dallas's, the Dynasties, the Knots mm-hmm. Landing, Falcon Crest. Oh, Dynasty. Knots Landing. Yeah. Yeah, Knots Landing. Yeah. Dynasty was was spelling though. That was oh, somewhere okay. else. Yeah. I did work on that though. You did. I did with uh, Tony Thorpe. Mm-hmm. So do you find like your niche then with the soaps? Well, it with, was all with shoulder pads film. and it big was, hair. It was, <laughs> that was. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yes that was the era i had shoulder pads too as a matter of fact for my we all did <laughs> nights out stuff. Yep. Yeah. we all did <laughs> i mean the 80s and tv it was just it was go 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 i mean i i grew up here and my mom worked um she was a graphic artist and she worked across the street from the smokehouse so across the street from warner and the smokehouse there and there just was an energy i don't know what it was it just uh warner brothers there i still love warner warner's still my favorite warner's in my home lot i spent almost 40 years there yeah it's it's my my backyard you know um i was just looking up at your imdb as well did you and is this yours dave mcguire this one's josh's josh's but theirs are very similar, actually. I know. <laughs> we worked with a lot of we spent a lot, we spent all, I mean, Dave would bring me to shows that he yeah. was mastering, and I would bring Dave to shows that I was mastering because we knew we could trust each other. Well, there's, yeah, there's something you said about, yeah, the shorthand. When you're working with someone and have trust, everything in this industry always comes down to trust. I think life's about trust, you know, and yeah. you know it'll be done. It'll be done in the right way. Communication's solid. He's cracking up at some old shows. Solomon's Universe. What's Solomon's Universe, Josh? That was a pilot, wasn't it? That, that was a pilot we yeah. shot out in the middle of oh the desert God. in the summer with Telly Savalas and a screaming director. A screaming director. We, we, we shot out in the middle of the desert in summer, and the costume department put these poor actors in spacesuits that had no ventilation with huge, clear plexiglass helmets. Oh, no. That I mean, I'm surprised actors didn't pass out. Yeah, it was it was just it, it it was it was just cruel. It was really cruel. Well, it's it didn't go anywhere, did it? It didn't go anywhere. <laughs> that there was oh god, there was one situation on that shoot that I tell I tell this story all the time. I hope I can squeeze it in here. There was a cliff, and um, the cliff was I don't know forty feet tall. Yeah, out in the desert. And the special effects was dumping all these rocks for a landslide over the over the edge, right? And they had a bunch of fuller's earth mixed into it, and <clears throat> and we get that shot, and the actors run, you know, run away like they were like they were close to it, which they weren't. But then they decide to do a reload, right? And they put all of these f- fake rocks, which, by the way, are all covered in fuller's earth. They don't even use that much anymore. No. But fuller's earth is dust yeah a lot of dust yeah cancer they, causing dust yeah i was right. gonna say they changed it to smear now so, which yeah. they took all the, <laughs> the harmful elements out they, in their planning they had figured the quick way to get all these rocks back up was to put them in a big cargo net and have a helicopter lift them back up to the top to reset it yeah so what happens when you have prop wash from a helicopter and a whole lot of fuller's earth oh jeez <laughs> we couldn't see anything yeah. for like 10 minutes it was crazy. Oh my god! And we they weren't handing out dust masks in those days. No, I mean with, with this forty years ago. So it was like the I'm sure the labor laws were a lot more loose in the way they treat. There background. were no labor. There were labor laws. We never really abided by any of them on, yeah. on, on a film set. 
Yeah, so there wasn't really much protection for the background actors either. There was no... Yeah, no one's going to... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Get fair. the shot. Get the shot. <laughs> Grab a rag and put it over your face quick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's any of this, that, that was post-Twilight uh, Zone. And that was intense. Yeah, yeah. You, I would have thought after yeah. that, after the helicopter situation there, was there would have been some. Pre- that was, was this quite what, a while ago? Was eighty five? Is that this was? I thought it, I, don't, I don't know when Twilight Zone was. Uh, was like Twi- Twilight Zone, early I believe, 80s. was a little early. early? Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I was I, I was on location when the Twilight Zone accident happened. And the crow was like ninety. <laughs> the crow. The crow was like ninety two, two or three. But, the, but I mean, yeah. 1982. Okay. Yeah, so it was a couple of years before. Twilight Zone was a couple of years before we did Solomon's right. Universe. Right. So they just didn't take it all yeah. that seriously yet. I mean, but going back to the early part of the conversation, we were talking about safety around knives and about CG. And now because mm-hmm. technology has come a lot farther, you can do that. I know post-rest, so many shows now are they're doing the muzzle flash in post and they're Using what soft air guns? Is that what they're? Yeah, that's air, what we air use. Soft. The, that's, that, that's what we use in the show that we were just on. We use the CO two cartridges. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the actors are more comfortable with all that. Yeah. That's why. Yeah, I think. I mean, even like everybody wants to look at the gun now, and that's even when it's a rubber. Like everybody wants to look at see how rubber it is, you know. And that's just and how it is. Josh and I worked with guns a lot over yeah. the years, and we never had a single accident yeah. of any kind. No. Just follow so the protocols. If you follow the protocols, exactly, those things don't happen. No, yeah. exactly. You know, and I'll I'll fight anybody right now to either still use a real gun, yeah, and and a blank, huh. or or an airsoft, because maybe it's because I come from an acting background. Maybe it's just because I really, I think I'm a good prop master. Our job is supposed to enhance a performance. And if I'm giving an actor a static, solid rubber gun or just a a, a dummy gun that's not going to move and they're going to fire it, it's going to, in some way, shape or form, um, affect their performance. You know, the gun has to have some sort of recoil when it Mm -hmm. fires so that it gives the actor something to react to in my in my opinion. So whether it's an airsoft gun that has a little bit of recoil or the real gun with a blank and we do it safely, um, I would always, always prefer to give an actor something that's going to move. Yeah. Yeah, I would too. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, even with product placement, as you're talking, I'm trying to think, we've had so many brands in the 30 years I've been doing this. (laughs) But, you know, a lot of times there's a perception like, oh, there's movie magic. Even with just gaming or anything like that they, they can figure it out i'm like no yeah, i'm trying to th- we you do need controllers to work you do need some things to, to i, I always i always love to try to i mean um i always try to give the actor whatever it's as close to possible what it's going to be if they're looking at a phone i mean there's a lots of post productions who love to just shoot a a blank screen or a screen with just tracking markers and they'll put in the screens after the fact. I don't know many of those productions anymore. They <laughs> yeah. always want something on the phone now. Yeah. And, and I, I would always, I would always love to try. Of course, then you have to have playback. Right, right, right. You know, because I'm not great. You want to put something on the screen. What's on the screen is not a prop. You know, putting it on the screen is not a prop. Yeah, which is still a fight. It's always a <laughs> it's fight. It's still a fight. It's always a fight. 
But you know, that's not an action prop. The phone is a prop. What's on the phone is playback. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking because you're talking. So some of those playback places, I've are playback. Um, are there less and less jobs in playback then? I just left before I came here. I just left one of uh, the playback places out here that I use all the time. And I had a bunch of old laptops over the years. So I just was just donating them mm-hmm. to give them some, some stuff for their stock. And like everybody else, since we find ourselves in week eight yeah. of, the, yeah. of the writer's like strike, that, yeah. you know, they're doing a lot of uh, cleaning up, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, there's nothing shooting. Yeah. You know, it's just a very, very, um, uh, yeah, we, per- perilous time in the industry. But we've been through a couple of them ourselves. Not yeah. like this. We had the hundred day one. It, but, but what's different now is the people that are sitting around the table at the AMPTP sure. are, are not filmmakers. Correct. And the studios are just another industry that they own in a massive file folder of <clears throat> of, uh, conglomerates. of conglomerates. And, yeah. you know, if, if Warner Brothers isn't making money, sell it. Mm-hmm. Let's get a, a pharmaceutical company that's making money. Mm-hmm. You know, so they don't want to give up anything. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how all of that plays out and this week with the actors. Yeah. Because exactly. that, that will tell a lot, I think, for what happens with the writers. For sure, for sure. Over the weekend, uh, you know, with the DGA ratifying, mm-hmm. we, we all, I think, pretty much felt that that was going to happen, mm-hmm. you know, so that was good. Um, you know, indications, even though there's a blackout, there's been, you know, the announcement, I think, Fran, to her, to the guild, to the, she had <clears> her <throat> message of positivity that they're in, moving in good direction. But I do agree. I mean, our company, we were sold, uh, product placement, Norm Marshall, he sold in 2012. And we are a tech and AI company now. And this is one component of an overall technology. Yeah. So we have influencers, we have product placement. Um, we have um, TubeBuddy, which is a company that grows for influencers, helps them grow their own base and techno- through technology and AI. So as we talk about evolution, like we always have to evolve uh, with the industry. And tech can be supplementive. It can really be additive. But what you're saying is absolutely true. Like if we go through all of the studios on, on paper and look at them all, they are all tech companies. Mm-hmm. Um, their data is is what they own. So I do get, you know, I, I, I get concerned with the ask for performance-based residual requests in, in contracts because we've been working with these companies. Our company has been working with we launched Netflix as an agent. We were their product placement agency when it was the little DVDs. I think mm-hmm. I remember bringing in the mail. You guys, yeah, in the mail. And yeah. you guys, you guys had free. We had memberships. Mm-hmm. We were giving out to everyone. But trying to get that within mail and in a storyline that people are getting their DVD in the mail was was something else. But um, I mean, we've worked with them, yeah, since '05 or whatever, and through the evolution into streaming. But even with all that, we don't know actual data. We don't know how a show is performing. Director of the the Duffer Brothers, I do not believe, know how their Stranger Things performs. You know, so it's their data. So yeah. they're going to wire. I, they don't have to give it away. I am. I am. As a retiree, mm-hmm. I am very concerned about that particular the the funding of the of the <laughs> retirement fund. Right. Because it's based on movies released uh, that are made on the West Coast. Right. So, <clears throat> if that's the only source, that source is really drying up. And sure. It's. 
you know, the residuals aspect of things I sort of planned on for my 35 years of working in the business, I planned on having a, a, a pension and, mm -hmm. and medical and all that stuff. Um, <clears throat> not on a downside, but on a, it, that is part of this kind of negotiation that's going on right now. It's not just the current wages. It's, it's how do we fund all this other stuff that right. goes along with people. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's insider information that, you know, obviously we have prop people or industry people listen to this, but if there are film students out there, if there are brands out there, just people who are fans of, of film and TV, it's this kind of information that they, they don't understand. And yeah, I'm married to a prop master and I'm still not, you know, we're only a year in, but, uh, you know, the eight years we were together, I never really asked about all this stuff until all of a sudden we're sharing finances and I'm like, how's that pension going? Yeah, you know, but or or the the insurance, you know, I, I it's all those aspects that I think outside of the industry, there's not a lot of understanding about that. And you're right, I there's so much that's shooting outside of the of the country right now. Mm -hmm. So while we are still not we're not working right now here, I've got uh, you know Bulgaria for Colorado filming. And you're like yeah. naturally, sure, you know <laughs> Australia for North Hollywood, perfect, yeah. you know. And it's like they are sending a ton out. Um, and that's a concern, you know, for unions because they're sending so much where unions don't exist. Right. You know, so. But when I said we've been through it before, Josh, I was like, we will yeah. get out of it. We're going to get through it. I, I, we, we will come out the other side. The only way out is through. We'll come out the other side. But I think this is really a seminal strike for the industry. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Dave and I have lived through strikes for videotape and strikes for DVDs. And, um, you know, this, the streaming is a whole different ball game. It really is. Yeah. And it's important to get these points in now because the three year cycle for contracts, you know, technology will pass that up. You know, you can't catch. Which, mean, which is why the writers are, are adamant about having a conversation about AI mm -hmm. now, because what AI is going to do over the next three years is going to be, you know, light speed ahead where we of where we are right now you've got to discuss it you can't just say we're not going to discuss it well you time flies really it. fast because i was doing a panel in can lion that just wrapped up this past week and it was four years ago in 2019 and it was on ai and i had laurie mccreary who was the president of the pga at the time she herself was a um, computer scientist the only female graduate from her ucla class and then becomes crosses over and uses that in you know technology background that she has to be a great producer and we had Rafi Fine who's a who's a big um, digital presence and producer and just talking about AI and data bias and all this information that I had a mass crash, crash course before I went out there so I could do it but that was four years and four years went by fast I know they were pandemic years but here we are and I had message I had a Facebook mess uh, rememories come back up and I was like wow that was four years ago because we're still talking about AI now like it just started when it hasn't just started I mean we as our company because we have an influencer side of our business that really uh, utilizes AI uh, a lot with with bots and combating bots and, and driving engagement and this and that and their strategies but it's not new you know it, so the last three year cycle obviously there wasn't any leverage in 20, 2020 no one we didn't have that but um, it'll be interesting you know we can't it's like the interwebs, you know, when the, the World Wide Web happened, you couldn't ignore it, you know, because yeah. I'd be still standing at my fax machine faxing memos, you know, <laughs> remember that? I used to have to like fax memos to my clients, you know. Um, but yeah, if we ignored it then, I mean, we can't ignore it. It's just about how are we going to utilize it um, safely.
you know, I mean, you both, you've been doing this a long time. So you, we just talked about the, the binders and the, mm-hmm. the source books and now with technology, like what's your advice to your fellow, uh, prop masters? Uh, tech- I mean, if there was a young person in film school who's listening to this and thinking about getting into the industry in any part of the industry, um, no matter what you're doing in the industry, have a day job. Um, figure out another way to make a buck also because this industry is, is fickle and there'll always be the three-year cycles. Um, and uh, if, if I had, I always wanted to do something else on the side. I always wanted to have my side hustle I was blessed and cursed to be so busy doing this and raising a family that I never really got the side hustle going. Um, but, you know, so when we would get into these periods, you know, years ago when I was young and there was a strike period, you know, they were, they were, they were trying. You know, when you have a writer's strike for a hundred and some odd days, you know, and you don't have a paycheck, yeah. that's tough. So I would, I would say, you know, the industry is like no other industry. It's, it's what's great is great and what's awful is awful. And it's, um, I can't imagine doing anything else for a living. Um, but I would also save your money as much as you can and figure out something else to do on the side to make a buck. Just to always have some other revenue stream besides, besides the industry. I forced my daughter to uh, have a separate bank account for two different banks so she doesn't see her savings. You know, it's like it automatically goes into one and she doesn't ever use that. And so it's it's separate, you know, for having you know, her savings. Our, our industry is famous for the overtime, uh-huh. the long, long hours. And I, uh, good advice, I didn't take it, but good advice that I got from an old friend of mine, Gene Mulnar, you know, Gene. Mm-hmm. He, said, he said, I learned early on to live on my straight time and save my overtime. Mm. Because they're usually pretty close to the same check. Yeah, yeah, they are. And and that worked for him. He retired comfortably doing that. Yeah. Like, aren't the hours as you talk about safety and like back then they didn't really care and they're like, let's keep shooting through the night. Well, I mean, now have the hours changed? I mean, well, sure. I know back back then when we were doing you know our our Lorimar years and or before that, I mean, um, you know when. Dave and I started our careers, there were no Fridays because there were Friday penalties and you had to be wrapped by midnight on a, you had to be gone off the clock by midnight on a Friday, up on a Friday. Otherwise it was double, double gold and no producer wanted to pay it. So by 11 something, they were pulling the plug. If you didn't have the shot to pick it up on Monday. You'd pull the plug. It was too expensive to keep shooting. That's yeah. that. That was the whole. That's how we had weekends. It was too expensive for them to shoot on the weekend. Right. We that 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 whole the concept of um, double time at twelve hours, like at twelve hours from the time you started, that you didn't take out time for lunch or anything like right, that. Right. 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 From the time you started, when the twelfth hour hit, you automatically were in double time, and like Josh was saying. If perchance you went to past midnight on Friday night, Saturday was automatically double whatever you were making when you yeah. went in. So it w- turns out you went double time, you were in double time, you were four times. 
Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, you know? that's nice. <laughs> and, and, it, and it hardly ever happened. Hardly ever yeah. happened. Hard, I mean, and we and we all were healthy and knew our our wives and kids and stuff like that because we were we were home by midnight yeah i will say with thing i mean it, it used to be really really bad that that's one thing that the new 54 hour turnaround i've seen it work and it, it has Good. been more on the mind of um, producers and stuff like that like from season one of horror stories to season two is when that implemented and it was like it was like we used to we went from every single weekend having a friday there was always friday they'd go straight until six o'clock in the morning and, and then it almost never happened uh we were all done by midnight on friday and they just they we still got everything we needed they just split their times uh, and and it, it would be it would be more of a like we would shoot to midnight the whole week pretty much so you just get your night shots in when you can and it would be a little bit more of a later call time every day but at least we didn't work till 6 a.m and my crew liked that a lot more yeah i'll bet yeah i mean i mean there were many many times over the years when you know you get to friday night and you're doing your night shots and especially if i was doing a western and shooting out in one of the ranches out in uh, santa clarita out Out here out here out here in santa clarita you know and I'd be going home at two thirty, three o'clock in the morning, and the radio's blaring and the windows right. are down, and I'm driving with one arm on the wheel and one hand, literally holding open an eye, yeah, because I'm so tired, yeah. and that's just the way we did it yeah. back then. It I wasn't. Used to, I used to pull over and take a ten minute nap yeah. on the way home just to get enough refreshment to make it the next ten miles or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Jeez. Um, I wanted to talk, uh, you talked earlier about you, you were drawn to this because you were the creativity of it mm-hmm. and the interpretation mm-hmm. in your scripts and for, of props. And one of my favorite one, because I didn't want to leave this out, something that Josh, you, you, you applied your creativity in Suddenly Susan. We, like I said, you were the first prop master I ever worked with. And when it comes to product placement, you know, we share our brands and this is what we're doing, this and that. And I really didn't know anything about anything. And I called Josh and I said, hey, uh, we just got a soda. I was so excited because, we, you know, Tony had Coke and Davey Brown had, had uh, Pepsi. And I was like, I'm finally out of a product that's really cool. But it was Jolt Cola. And so this is like preceding Red Bull, preceding Celsius, all the rain, you know, all the energy drinks. And I say, I, I called you and I said, is there anything you could do with Jolt Cola? And you said, just, just come on by, drop it off. And, um, you could tell the story from here actually on your side of how you created something, because this was the first placement I ever scored ever. And it's the one Josh is going to tell you about. And it really set a high standard for the rest of my career. This was your first place? It was my first placement that aired. So, like, I'd done wardrobe, right? So I'd been doing with costume designers. But when I met you, it was over the summer before the season. We'd signed, you know, um, Jolt. And we had other brands we'd given you, but the Jolt one. And it was their first placement on top of it. So coming back from that, nothing really seemed to... Well, you, you gave me, you know, product, you know, Kansas Soda and everything else. And... The, uh, the main set for, for Suddenly Susan was like the bullpen area of this magazine. And we had this one character who was really high energy and everything else. And I thought it, go- it went with the brand of Jolt very well. And I, it was definitely out the, outside of the box thinking. I just took one of the cans of soda and emptied it and cut the top off the can and 
made it a pencil holder. Oh, but first there was a it was a coffee run though. So they'd gone, oh, oh, and you right. actually that's scored right. me a verbal on top of it. That's right. So it was like someone had gone on a coffee run, and everyone had these really fancy, beautiful drinks, and then that character, yeah, I ta- I you, to you the, talked him into it. I, ta- said, I talked to the producers into doing something like that. That's right. And, and then, they and, said Jolt Cola, like they're making right. fun of it. I and totally I, forgot about it that. It was crazy. Yeah, I it, remember making the uh, the pencil holder out, yeah. of, out of a Jolt can, which then lived on his desk for years. Because it really became the identifier of like that personality yeah. which is what a lot of brands do for you guys mm-hmm. use them for shorthand all the time but yes it went from like hey so what do i do with this me actually just calling for advice and like because it wasn't your standard soda and it was full of a ton of caffeine <laughs> you know it was really before red bull ever yep. came aboard it was all the all the caffeine and twice the sugar is that what it was so yeah, that was their yeah. Slogan, yeah i should remember and um <laughs> but yeah you got like you convinced him like it's better that he wouldn't just be drinking coffee he would be drinking a jolt cola and he was this young guy and then you took that and created a pencil holder so in every episode whenever like i'm looking at mike right now it was right right there and you could see it and i was like this and i was the- always turning it to camera it was yeah. It was the best placement ever. And if anyone was watching, you know, syndicated suddenly, Susan, I don't think Jolt's around any longer. But um, yeah, it was, and so that really set the bar. And I was like, yeah. this is, you know, but it taught me a lot about how you could read between the lines, and um, yeah, make how prop masters really make things happen. It well, wasn't I, just I, reading I mean, I a script. That, that I think that Dave feels the same way. It was. I mean, I took great pride in thinking outside of the box and finding creative ways to do product placement. I mean, I, I didn't just love getting the stuff dropped off and then having all this stuff here that was useful, but also many Useless. times in the way because we had very small spaces, but trying to find a way to integrate it into the show. I mean, you guys take the time and trouble to come and drop it off. Mm-hmm. Let's try to find a way to put it in the show. Help well, then keep I just the budget yeah. down. Yeah, exactly. Right. It can hopefully keep the budget down, but also too, hopefully it's useful. It's so it's like I don't even like the term, my whole career. I'm like I don't like product placement. It sounds like skeezy, but you know, and I'm not I'm not placing it really. It's just if it helps the scene. You know, I'm looking around at this table and it helps the character. Then you know it makes sense. But that was one of my favorite examples that I often yeah. you know use because it really said something about the character. And of course, it's at the bar. But I learned a lot about the the lens that props has um, when they're whether it's a brand or you know props. Just the storytelling, how important it is through props. You know, in in, in my career too, in speaking just of product placement, <clears throat> all of the networks seem to work in a cycle. Mm-hmm. It was it was like. Not, absolutely nothing that even resembles the product can be on camera. And then it would be, well, if it's turned away and the colors are there, you can do that. And then it would be, well, you can see a couple of the letters, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it just would, it would evolve and, and it would change. I'd get, a, I'd get the network producers would come, the sitcoms, Yeah, they would come on a, on a show night and they'd want to see everything that we had working. Yeah. So they could say yes or no to the product placement stuff. Well, to, to go back to, to Suddenly Susan, because that was a, a great product placement show. Um, I believe it was the second season. Apple uh, came out with the, um, uh, the iMac. Mm-hmm. And the, the original iMacs were these brightly colored. Oh, yeah. yeah. They were like, they had pink ones and they, like they were, blue. They were, they were, I had the turquoise one. They, <laughs> were, they were branded perfectly mm-hmm. 
because nothing looked like them. You didn't have to have some big splashy logo, mm -hmm. but you knew exactly what it was. Yeah. And I remember the first time we had a network run through for Suddenly Susan, and the, I had put these on all the desks in the bullpen. And the standards and practices guy came over and goes, well, we can't have those on the, on the desks. And I said, why? They're just computers. We're not, well, and we had this entire intellectual conversation about the branding of a product. And Apple was a real trendsetter mm -hmm. in, in the way that they, they handled that product. I mean, off subject for one second, my son was also a child actor. Yep. And he was cast in the commercial for the Apple iMac. Um, which Andy Siegel was the prop master on. <laughs> and they never aired it. They never aired the commercial. They shelved it because the product was branded so well, they never, ever had to air a commercial for it. Yeah. It just sold. Yeah. That's the power of good branding. Yeah. I mean, they we knew it too. We, we had it with Dyson. When, yep. Dyson, when Dyson came to the States in uh, 04, we started working with them and it just looked so different Difference. and strange and I that mean, actually would hold it we it would work against us a lot too mm -hmm. because our director would be like i'm sorry what is this you know you're trying it to explain looks too upscale. it's too upscale yeah. you know this and that and then as it went on i mean look where it's at right now but it was a great or we had palm wonderful mm -hmm. you know you, you just you know it by the by the, shape bot, of the, the shape of the bottle but it's funny norm had a like on murphy brown he had the donuts donuts boxes for for mm -hmm. dunkin donuts and we actually had brand our brands would make greek product so we had we had the you know dunkin donuts boxes or the donuts donuts and they totally approved it and did it on their own we had birkin labels we had mm -hmm. uh instead of uh seven up i forgot what the seven up was but anyway i mean we we made those and now actually the the networks would prefer you just use a straight regular product right because, because now it's trademark infringement yeah so you know it it does it, it does uh, a cycle but it and the rules you're talking about cigarettes over there like yeah there was a show that's coming out on apple apple has a strict policy of no alcohol no um uh, cigarettes for product placement. I'm like, well, yeah, no one's going to do product placement for cigarettes. Although it used to be huge. Yeah. It used to be huge. Yeah. But um, not any longer. But you still see sp spirits all the time, you know, as long. But it's just no promo. You can't be for yeah. free. But um, there's a a show. I know someone who did it. And you do too. And he, it's coming out in the summer here. And it's set in the 60s in South Beach. Or you can't show cigarettes. I'm like, it's hard to do like a Mad Men or a 60s without, oh, yeah. you oh, need cigarettes. But everyone's different because you'll see it like on Netflix or Amazon, but it's disclosed. But you know that there will be cigarette use. It's just, you, you have to have it. I got Even Netflix pushes back against cigarettes. They now. do? I mean, yeah. I mean, Glow was like the last Netflix show I ever did where we were okay doing cigarettes and stuff like that. And then now, even when we're doing like an 80s film or an 80s show or whatever, they really push back on anybody smoking. Like if there's anything else they could be doing. Is that what they say? Yeah, if there's yeah. anything else they could be doing, but it's like, yeah, but background would all be smoking right now. That's <laughs> They go back in the 80s anywhere, like they're going to be smoking everywhere. Like everybody's I mean, smoking. <laughs> I mean, it, it is how I made my early relationship. I'd stand outside of stages. And I was like 22 and I shouldn't have been smoking, but I did. And you just, everyone was out there. Mm -hmm. You know, you talk to prop people or actors and this and that. And then it, it worked to my, against me because we had a cigar company that we were representing and we went to suddenly Susan mm -hmm. and I was like any opportunity was, I literally, 
I went to Josh and everything. I'm like, what do I do with this friend? What do I do with this friend? And you're like, oh, we actually have a poker game. So I came and brought these over. You know where I'm going. And I got so green as this room. It's painted green. Because you're like, oh, we need them to look like they were being smoked or like burn them down, whatever. And so I don't know what I was thinking. It's like 1130. You know how you ate at 6 a.m. and then you haven't eaten. And then it's almost <laughs> lunchtime. And I was inhaling like I would smoke cigarettes probably. And I was so sick for the rest of the day. Because oh, I really but... thought, I'll just help you out. I'll... It was green. It was horrible. But um, times change. Do you not do herbal cigarettes in, in exchange back then? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> that looked like it was a no. I, 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 th- I thought that the herbal cigarettes stunk worse than tobacco. They definitely do. <laughs> I'm not yeah. doubting that. So. Yeah, no. When we we would have big party scenes with you know hundreds of extras and everybody had real cigarettes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody had real cigars, and then they would put you know bee smoke in there, which was you know another carcinogen. And I mean, yeah. yeah, I used to go go around to all the ashtrays in a busy set, and I. I'd cut cigarettes in half and burn them from both ends so that we had lots of burning cigarettes in the ashtrays and lots of full ashtrays, and there was a lot of smoke. Yeah. A lot of cigarettes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Harsh times, harsh yeah. times. <laughs> Catching a lot of I cigarettes. Mean, smoke. But, but like, it was kind of that way everywhere anyway. That's what I'm saying. Like yeah. My, yeah, yeah. I just, it, I mean, if, you went to, if you went to the restaurant, people were smoking. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you, if, you, if you went to, if you were on a plane, people, I mean, it was a different, society was different. Yeah. yeah. So switching gears going okay. forward. Okay. So prop masters moving forward. Uh, I know, Josh, I mean, you're you're being able to parlay your next chapter. You're taking all this. You somehow were working on parlaying your career of mastering into you're still staying into in filmmaking. And yes. and um, I knew I do know other you know, I think it's a role that's interesting to talk about Uh with APs with associate producing because I there are that is a role for prop people or people in the art department if they wanted to get into producing I lend their ex- experience in my opinion. You yeah, know. I mean it it um, uh, it took forty seven years, mm-hmm. but I mean I finally will have an associate producer credit on on my next film, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know. Uh, whether it's, you know, associate producing or, you know, getting involved in the PMG, mm-hmm. you know, um, which, you know, as you know, is one of my babies, uh, you know, not just working the set, you know, and, and doing the prop master thing, but, you know, prop masters are a, um, are a rare breed, um, you know, not, this, this work is not cut out for everybody, right. but um, if, if it's in you, um, you know, I, I think it's probably one of the, the most creative, um, careers you could think of because, you know, I mean, yeah, you spend six months, you know, in 1983, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, doing, doing all the research and living in that world and then, oh, okay, now I'm going to go do a Western right. and then I'm doing something that's, you know, set in Vietnam Oh, now I'm going to do a sci-fi picture. Yeah, in the future. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, to be able to just stretch your, your brain and your creativity and wrap, your, wrap yourself around all of that, I mean, for me, I think that's, that's, that's pretty great. But, you know, to, to go to the, the point you're, you were making about being an associate producer, you know, um, I think that we do much more 
then keep actors' hands full. For sure. And uh, hopefully in the, 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 the years to come, uh, more and more producers um, are going to, um, uh, to take notice of all that a, prop, a, a really good involved prop master um, can bring to a picture. You know, um, you know, I was very fortunate to work with a group of people on this last one that, that saw that mm-hmm. and wanted to, you know, um, acknowledge it. So, uh, and, I, and I hope that other, I mean, I know there are other prop masters who have been prop masters for a year and become an associate producer or become a director. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just another one in that line. And I hope that there's more and more and more of them in the years to come. Yeah, as you're talking about, you know, keeping the craft elevated, the PMG mark. What's the you know the the hope for? Are the producers embracing that? Is that making much yet? I know we're still only a year and a half launched. Um, I I I I don't know because I'm I'm semi-retired right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't uh, I don't know, and um, uh, I mean, Michael, I mean, you're, Michael, you're, you you're involved a... in in PMG. I mean, do you have a, a sense of that? I I not fully yet i'm starting to see things that are turning over quicker like i like local 44 i think is like fully embracing us now and i've been sitting in at a lot of their their e-board meetings and stuff like that and they're like all in with us and they uh, they 100 percent tremendous yes exactly they 100 percent. like even toby said he's like oh this we used to be enemies with groups like this and the sdsa and stuff in the past and he's like i think this is a different time and we need to learn to look out for each other and elevate these types of groups that are trying to better themselves and it can only be beneficial to us too so they see it as us being beneficial to them so i think as more of like these inner organizations that are directly related to us are helping uplift us as also and taking us seriously that it's only a matter of time, you know, that, that the producers are going to start yeah. taking. And it's, it goes into like stuff that we do for ourselves, like putting our credit in with PMG. Right. So mm-hmm. get them to ask the questions more and, and, mm-hmm. and saying, well, I'm a guild member. Yeah. Right. Like hopefully that'll make us. And then where we're trying to do the awards by, by early next year. And mm-hmm. I'm a, we're hoping that, saying I'm an award-winning prop master is also going to help elevate us because it's like, okay, right. and it's deliver more. So all these things are going to get us on the radar and be taken seriously by the, by the, by the producers' guilds and stuff. You know? Right. Yeah, I, I, w- I would agree with that uh, wholeheartedly. And I think that actors who might be younger now and become producers because – you know, we work day in, we work day in day with producers, but producers are often, you know, in their office or they're, they're writing or something like that. We don't hold hands with producers the way we hold hands with actors. You know, we work day in and day out with actors. We make sure they're comfortable and make, make sure the prop is right, make sure this works and that works. And, you know, as those actors who really know what we do and appreciate what mm-hmm. we do, as they become producers, I think we'll see a lot more traction yeah. As some of those actors become producers. Right. I agree. And also it goes to say like like us starting to be accepted into the academy and stuff. Like mm-hmm. and that number growing, that's that's also gonna do it too. You know, right. it's like people are taking us more seriously and we're hoping to speed that up too and elevate it. Yeah. I'd like to I'd like to see a lot more acknowledgement of the <clears throat> the real true prop master, prop man 
the person who interprets the script and and brings brings more to it than just what's written between the oh the, yeah the dialogue you know the, the scene descriptions tell you so much you know, right he's holding a can of soda well you know there's a lot more that could be there yeah and and <clears throat> a good prop man brings that to the table yeah and not a lot of people know about that no they, they just think that they're handed a list of things to bring to the set right it's not. It will, it, it will be, I mean, I'm, I'm very pleased with, you know, the, the Facebook group, and I'm pleased that we now have the PMG and all of that. I will be um, over the moon the day that we have a, an, uh, an Oscar broadcast or an Emmys broadcast, and when they hand the award for art direction and production design, that there's actually four people on the stage instead mm -hmm. of three. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's that's going to be the, um, the, the really seminal moment for for mm -hmm. what the PMG is trying to do is to take nothing away from what a production designer or an art director or a set decorator does, nothing away from them. What they do is unbelievable. Yeah. We are part of that process. We are yeah. part of that look. Yeah. Um, just as important, I've always said that if, if, if you're doing a Western and all of a sudden you're going to, you know, the, the blacksmith and I bring in a hammer that I just bought from Home Depot, <laughs> you know, tell me the hammer is not part of the look of the show. Mm -hmm. You know, the prop person has to do their homework also. They've got to work hand in hand with the designers and the decorators and everybody else to get a seamless look. And it's just, it's old school thinking, it's old school politics, and it's just time to, to right this wrong that's just been been in the industry since its inception yeah i i, I think it, there's no greater group of passionate people than prop people and i could say this because i've worked with you for decades you just and you're married to one and i am <laughs> <laughs> because i love him so i love it so much but yeah i mean you know the passion's there I mean, what you talked about the misperception it's just an, on a sheet of paper a, a breakdown that's not it because i used there is that passion. There's so much passion behind every everything you're doing. And um, yeah, we're all excited. And that's why we all are back in the PMG, looking forward to making uh, changes. As we're closing out, um, what if you were to give your 22-year-old self or your, your, your early generation, your early years self, like we're, we're talking to film students maybe out there or you know younger people in the craft, um, what's advice you wish you had known? you would give someone Dave well, what worked for you well it's the works and doesn't works uh -huh. because what worked was was being open to change mm -hmm. things I, I said it earlier the industry is constantly changing and you have to be willing to shift the way you do things to accommodate that also and I don't want to be too big of a harpster on this but I've been sober for 35 years mm -hmm. and Stay away from the party scene. Yeah. Whatever that entails, whatever things that, 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 that happen to come across your path in the industry, stay away from those. Save your money for other things. Save it up for when, for your kids. For, save it up for when you retire. Do something like that. Mm -hmm. Do not waste money on partying. Yeah. That would be, and, you know, 
Stay with the change. It's yeah. gonna change no matter what you want or how you think how think you you, you think See, you do it. It's the positive energy yeah. from Dave McGuire that I always <laughs> come to expect. And you're right, just be open to it, you know. Yeah, I'd I'd say, you know, besides the the have a, a side hustle that I said earlier, I'd say, you know, uh, change is inevitable. Uh, roll learn how to to roll with things. Um, you catch more bees with honey. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are times when I put my foot down on a set. Uh, it was almost always, almost always because of safety. Uh, other than that, um, I was pretty malleable on a set. Um, and um, and learn, learn, how to, learn how to network um, without partying. Uh, <laughs> learn, learn how to network because you're nothing in this industry without a network. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it truly is. It's who you know, along with what you know. Right. And the more people you know, the more chances and opportunities you're going to get. And then just, and, and when you're on a set, just keep your eyes and your ears open and just soak yeah. it in. Yeah. Because you can, every day, every day, even this last film I did last year, after 47 years, I'm still learning because the technology is changing. I'm still learning how you make movies. I'm still learning it. Well, there's a whole young generation in the entire workforce, and I st- I learn from them all the time uh, beyond just slang because yeah. I'll sound silly if I do it. But, yeah, we can all learn from each other. So, yeah. Mike, do you have anything to throw in? What have you learned? What I learned? Uh, I haven't been uh, as – I don't have the wisdom you guys have. I haven't been in 40 years, but uh, – I don't know. Uh, I'd say my advice is not to get discouraged over jobs that uh, not every job you have the golden crew and you're not going to always have the director that's like on the same level as you. And like, so when you get on those jobs that are an absolute nightmare, not to get too discouraged. Cause I felt like I've come close to almost quitting just cause I felt like uh, I'm just not good at this or it's not cut out for me only to get onto the next job and be, and be like, complimented over the moon and like everything and like to show that okay i'm great at this and this job is at this level compared to this tier zero i just did where i was treated horribly and and it was just a nightmare so like it's to keep your head up and not get too discouraged by these jobs because they come sometimes and that's every job's different in this Mm -hmm. industry so i think that's the biggest thing what did you learn caressa Gosh, so much. No, I mean, everything you're talking about. I think it's, I mean, for my industry, it's it's relationships and networking. But the reason I've stuck around so long is because you all become my friends. Oh. So I feel like I have the greatest job ever is because, you know, yeah, it started out as networking so much so that I played on the Suddenly Susan softball team. Mm-hmm. Because I was starting out, and I'm like, I need to, to meet people, and I need to network. What I failed to tell Josh, or what I failed to recognize myself, is I was a fast-pitch pitcher, and this was slow pitch <laughs> on Sundays after I'd been out all night. Um, and, uh, yeah, I couldn't hit, slide, run, field, anything else growing up. But I was this all-state pitcher, but that was fast-pitch. So, yes, uh, but I did it. I got, did I it. Got, I did it, and I took to network. But, honestly, um, yeah. I think to treat people like you want to be treated and I truly, everyone becomes my friend. And even those that, those that aren't the greatest are nice to me, you know, try to see their good qualities. And, um, if you want to stay in, yeah. If you want to stick around, make friends, make friends, you know, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks for joining us. It's been wonderful. It's been fun. Thanks. Yeah, definitely. Um, And thank you to everybody who's tuning in, Um, especially if it's your first time. We hope you stick with us. Uh, um, This was another episode of Prop Talk, the official podcast of the Property Masters Guild, which is brought to you by Real Working and Retired Prop Masters. Um, Make sure... You like and subscribe and comment wherever you're hearing this. It's going to help us out a lot, and we we, we love to know what you think. Um, if you want more information on the Property Masters Guild or have any questions for us here at Prop Talk, make sure you go over to propertymastersguild.org. Um, we're also on Instagram at underscore the PMG, and we're on all the other socials. Just look for the Property Masters Guild. Feel free to email us to info at propertymastersguild.org. Um, until the next episode.